Let me introduce Jason, uh, who's come up from, well, give us, tell us where you're from, tell, tell us where you've come from today, and a bit about yourself. Yeah, um, it's really good to be with you guys today. Thanks for having me. My name's Jason. Um, I am married to Rachel. Uh, we have four children. The eldest is 15, the youngest is uh, eight. And um, we have I've come up today from Battersea, which is where we live. So we live on a housing estate. We lived there for about 12 years. And um, we're South Londoners at heart, so we've always been in that kind of area of the world. But um, we moved to that particular estate to start a new church. And uh, that's where we've been living and working for the last little while. In the last 12 months, I've changed jobs. So I was a pastor there. I planted that church. But now I've moved to a slightly different role. I work for an organization called London City Mission. And that organization is all about helping other churches in London to particularly reach out to people and communities that are least likely to hear about Jesus. So that might be people who live on council estates, might be people who are displaced, who find themselves in a different part of the world that they're not used to, homeless people, um, people who explicitly worship other religions like uh, Muslims or Hindus, whatever it might be and uh, homeless people. I think that's all of them, children and youth as well. So that's what I do right now, and it's, um, it's great, great joy. Amazing. Jason, you've also um, been on the Archbishop's Council, is that right? What, what is it like to be on an Archbishop's Council? What do you even do? That's a good question. I haven't actually been on Archbishop's Council, so I can't quite answer that, but I have been on General Synod, and um, uh, General Synod is like the... Uh, the Parliament of the Church of England and so that's where they make decisions about uh, I guess the laws and rules and that sort of thing of the Church of England and you, you have to have a certain kind of personality to like that sort of thing um, <laughs> to be honest uh, but I guess it's quite important if, if you're a Church of England church because they decide you know the sorts of things that we can do and uh, approve of and so on uh, in churches across the land and so it's really important that, that people who love the Bible, love Jesus, are part of that, uh, just helping to make things happen. But it can feel a little bit like school, so it's not for everyone. <laughs> uh, Jason and I were together, probably in the early noughties, yeah. at church together, some time, some time ago now, in, in London. It's great to have you here with us, Jason. I'm really thrilled that we've fixed a date to have you to speak to us. Can I just pray for you, brother? Please. And uh, then we'll... Uh, let you crack on. Father, we thank you for Jason. Thank you for his ministry. Thank you for the church plant. Thank you for all that he's doing with London City Mission. Thank you for his heart for, for you and for the things that matter to you. Lord, please help him and um, encourage him as he ministers to us now uh, for these next few minutes. And Lord, give us hearts to hear what you're saying to us as he speaks. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Mike. It's so good to be here. And um, yeah, if, if you want to hear more about the sorts of uh, things that are going on across London, stories of changed lives, ways in which we can reach out to people who are in difficult situations, and I'd encourage you to, to just uh, go to the website. You can sign up to my prayer letter. Lots of uh, useful stuff there. So that's something you could do, lcm.org.uk. So I say that as I begin. But let me... Um, uh, say that if you've got one of these you might find those useful these I think were put on your sheets you might find that useful as we're going through um, but as we start I'm going to read some words from Acts chapter 10 which I think are going to come up uh, on the screen 
behind me. So Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 34. Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 34. Oh, I see there's some Bibles coming around. So if you need one, then uh, do avail yourself of that. But let me, let me read for us. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Amen. Well, 13 years ago, as I've just kind of uh, given you a little bit of a taste why I moved to Battersea, West London, with a vision. Uh, and that vision was that God would help us to start a new community, a community that people would walk into and see young, old, rich, poor, black, white, a multicultural, multi-ethnic community that loved one another. And not just loved one another when they walked into a particular place on a Sunday, but, but also would welcome gladly others in as well. And it's a vision that fits with what the Bible describes as the future of the whole world. And Mike, very kindly, has already taken us to it in Revelation 7. Revelation 7 on your sheets, let me read it for us again. After this, I looked, says John, one of Jesus' followers, in this vision that Jesus gave him. And what does he see? A great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is the direction of the whole of human history. All of uh, the tribes and languages and nations of the world who put their trust in Jesus before him in glory. But what gave us confidence that the God that we worshipped could make that happen, or a little snapshot of that happen, in Battersea, West London, when there was every reason to expect that there would be all kinds of tension, racially and otherwise. The Office of National Statistics tells us that there are 55,000 hate crimes reported to the police each year. Four out of five of them are race-related. People from minority ethnic groups are one and a half times more likely to be 
convicted and sentenced to a crime uh, compared to a white person who's committed exactly the same offence. You are ten times more likely to be stopped and searched by the police if you have brown skin. And it's easy to be suspicious of that sort of figure, but I can testify personally to having to ring up pastors on the way to preach and apologise that I'm going to be late because I've been stopped by the police. So, so with all of that, you would think that, that you'd expect there could be all kinds of tensions when we try and get different people in a room together. What gave us confidence that the God that we worship could bring peace between all kinds of people? And that's the question I want to use to focus us this morning. Why is God good news for racial unity and justice? Because the answer to that question, while we thought we could bring a different group of people together, just like you gathered here today, and the reason why we think that God is good news for racial unity and justice, well, the answer is the same. And in this part of the Bible that's just been read, well, we see God characterized by three guarantees, three guarantees that help us to understand why this is possible. They are these, that first, God shows no favoritism. Secondly, God offers peace. And thirdly, God provides evidence, evidence that his claims are true. God shows that there is no favoritism. He has no favoritism. God offers peace and God provides evidence that his claims are true. But because it's Racial Justice Sunday, I'm going to spend slightly longer on that first point than on the second two. So please don't be alarmed as I start to speak. You're like, we well, yes, seem to be on point number one. We'll spend a significant amount of time there just because that's the particular Sunday that we're in and it's an important emphasis. So just so you know where we are in the Bible story as we come to Acts chapter 10, Jesus has uh, lived and died on the cross. He's risen from the, the, the grave and he's ascended into heaven. And his disciples have begun to share the message of the good news of Jesus far and wide. And we've got to a key point in Bible history where Peter, one of Jesus' followers, for the first time is sharing this good news message with someone from a very, very different culture and ethnicity to him. And here is what he says. And here's the first thing that I want us to see. God shows no favoritism. God shows no favoritism. Let me read again from Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So then Peter began to speak, and he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So God shows no favoritism. That is to say, he doesn't judge on the basis of externals. He doesn't look at the clothes that we wear and say, you're in, you're out. He doesn't check how much money we've got in our pockets and say, well, look, you come to the front, you sit towards the back. He doesn't judge on the basis of externals. Now, the Guardian newspaper did an investigation about a year ago and it found out that there had been about 60,000 racist incidents recorded in UK schools all across the UK uh, over the past five years. 
One of them, of course, was um, the incident of Child Q. You might remember this, the 15-year-old girl who was strip-searched because a, a teacher had said that uh, she, he smelt cannabis uh, on her, or thought she had cannabis. Now, the, the, there was no cannabis found, and the police report concluded that racism was likely a factor in this unjustified search. Now, let me, let me be clear. I, I don't think for a moment that all police people or all uh, teachers uh, are racist intentionally. Not at all. But I share this just to, to say that this is a clear example where it seems like the teachers appear to have picked someone out unfairly on the basis of externals. Now, contrast that with God, who does not show favoritism. And throughout the Bible, this is what we see, that that God's message is that all people, whether you're young or old, black or white, rich or poor, whatever distinctions we might want to make, are all worthy of respect as people precious to God. And it's fair to say that Christians, following that very principle, have done much to bring justice to our society over the years. Schools have been built, orphanages have been founded, the poor have been looked after, those even with plague have been cared for, to the point that a Roman emperor back in the, a Roman emperor back in the fourth century wrote words to this effect. He said, those Christians, they won't stop devoting themselves to care for the poor, and not only their poor, but ours as well. In other words, they considered all people worthy of respect. And it's that characteristic of God that gave us confidence as we moved to Battersea all of those years ago to start a church, to start a new community, that a community built on Jesus would be a community that welcomed people who were different from one another, that would seek to respect all kinds of people and root out disparity and discrimination. That's why William Wilberforce, the uh, uh, 19th century statement, uh, statesmen labored to end the slave trade and it's why praise god st john's south end have said it's racial justice sunday let's think about this let's have this on our our radar the value and worth and respect of every person is precious to god so this is the first thing then god shows no favoritism but i want to just dig a little deeper and give some practical pointers of what that looks like to put that principle into practice in Christian community. And because I want to keep us rooted in the Bible, I just want to take us to one other scripture. It's printed on those sheets that you've got. It's Deuteronomy chapter 10. And I'll just read it. It's in the middle of that little piece of paper that you've got. Because this gives us a couple of practical principles to help as we think about this. It's a wonderful chapter. I encourage you to read it all if you get a chance, where Moses is speaking about what God is like. And he says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And one of the striking things here, I should say, that word partiality, it's the same kind of word as favoritism. It shows no favoritism, no partiality. And one of the striking things here is that showing no favoritism, showing no partiality, actually means 
for God, making sure that people that are likely to be treated differently are looked out for. So in other words, I'm, I'm not going to show favoritism, and what that means is making sure that people who are likely to be looked over are okay. That, that's important because often we can think showing no favoritism means I look at people and I say, I don't see the color of your skin. I don't see any difference between you. But actually, when we say, I don't see the color of your skin, I don't see any difference, what we're saying is we don't really see the real you. We don't see all of your history, all of the things that make it hard for you to, to make it to church on a Sunday morning or to get through life. And particularly to look out for the things that might make it difficult for you and see how we might make a difference there. And there are three ways that we see in this bit of the Bible. The first is public defense. That is to say, standing up for people when they're being looked down upon. Let me give you a practical example of that. I was at a meeting a little while ago where someone was making some racist jokes. Now, at the time they, they made it, I was distracted a bit. I didn't really hear what they were saying. But about a couple of hours after the meeting, a friend of mine came up to me who was in the same meeting. And he said, he said, did you hear what that guy was saying? You know, you know that must have been quite hard to hear. I said, oh, you know, I didn't really hear, but you know, thank you for saying that. And he just said, look, I wanted to say, I'm really sorry that you had to hear that. And I want you to know that I'm going to go and just have a word with that guy uh, afterwards. And as I say, I hadn't even really heard or taken in this joking that was going on. But I was so struck by the care and the courage of that man who just come up to me. He could have so easily just left it because so often that kind of banter and so on, it happens all the time. But I was really touched by the kindness and courage of that guy to just come up to me and say, look, I'm really, really sorry that that was said. And I want you to know that I'm actually gonna go and have a word with him. He publicly stood up uh, for me and for uh, uh, people who might be in danger of being uh, looked, uh, looked down upon, if you like. Public defense, calling out racism when you see it. So here's a question for us. Will we call out racism or prejudice when we see it? I don't know what it might look like in your situation. It might be a, a minority ethnic community. It might be a, a different social class. It might be a different cultural group. It could be all kinds of things. But will we call it out? Public defense, that's the first thing. Second thing, personal relationships. And now looking down at Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10 again, this is the God who shows no partiality. Uh, in verse 18, it says he defends the cause of the fatherless uh, and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you giving them food and clothing. So he loves those who are different. And love, of course, starts by having a relationship with someone. And so I guess what this might be asking us to do is think about what kind of friendships do we have? Could we invest in friendships with people who are different from us? And notice it says loves the foreigner residing among you. So it's not starting with saying, I've got to suddenly get to know everyone in South End. <laughs> it's saying, could I get to know maybe someone who's in my community a little bit more, who's quite different from me? 
someone who's in my local uh, area. You see, it's when you know someone well and you care for someone well that you have a personal motivation to care about the prejudice they might experience, to, to weep with those who weep, to bear with their burdens, to apologize and forgive. So, so could we resolve to just get to know someone better who's maybe from a different background from us? I went to a church recently and I was um, helping them think about their welcome as a church. And I had a really good time over a few weeks going there. I came in through the door, I was welcomed in, I got given some tea, coffee, uh, a Bible in my hand, shown to my seat, all, all of that sort of stuff. And I was writing up my report and I thought, this, this seems like they're doing a really good job. They're, they're a really welcoming church. And I interviewed a few people at random uh, from the church. And it was really striking what I heard as I interviewed people. A number of people said this. They said, everyone is welcoming uh, when uh, you walk through the door. Everyone's welcoming when you walk through the door. But after the service, you never see them again. It's like they'll give me the coffee and they'll, they'll, they'll show me to my seat. But after that, I never, I never, they never speak to me again. And it seemed like superficially there was a lot of welcome. But when you dug a little bit deeper, people quickly went back to their own groups and there was very little real cross-cultural friendship. So I guess here's another challenge for us. Will we have an attitude of, of hospitality and welcome in our hearts? Not just loving our friends, but loving strangers, people who are different from us. Now that is hard work. I was speaking to someone just earlier. That is hard work. And it will take intentionality. It will take saying, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to commit to doing it. You can't do it with everyone. Let's be realistic. We're all time poor. <laughs> but could I invest in one person? Just to get to know one person really well over this next year is quite different from me. It will take intentionality. It will take humility because... Very often we approach these things by thinking, we've got all the answers. Be my friend and I'll be able to help you. It might mean actually saying, look, how can you help me? How can you help me? And thirdly, it would probably take perseverance because getting to know people, people who are different from you, it's hard work. And there might be lots of times where you feel you've got it wrong and made mistakes and you've got to apologize to each other and all of that. And it might take perseverance to keep going at trying to build relationships. So that's the second thing then, personal relationships, public defense, personal relationships. And then third thing, provision for the disadvantaged. People who are on the margins, people who um, are treated badly will often end up being poorer, often end up disadvantaged in all kinds of ways, not having the opportunities that others have. And at the end of that verse, we see that God loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing, providing practical help and support. And um, just to give you one practical example of how that's worked where we are in Battersea, we set up a, a kind of mentoring group. We realized that some young black boys on our estate were the most likely to fall out of school, to, to trip up. And so we just set up a mentoring group where we come alongside them, do an after-school sort of club, get alongside their parents, mentor them, give them support, and teach them about Jesus as well. 
And we found that not only have they been massively blessed by that, but actually the community has said, hey, you're not just here for you, you're here, you're here for us. You've seen this problem that we're really struggling with on our estate and you've invested in it. So you know what? We want to come and hear more about Jesus. Praise God for what he's done uh, through that. Uh, there's, there's more that I could say. I'd love to hang around afterwards and speak to you more about uh, those sorts of things. Do ask me. But here's a summary of what I've said so far. God shows no favoritism. And we just thought a little bit about how that plays out in three areas. Publicly defending uh, those who are disadvantaged. Building personal relationships with those who are different from you. And thinking about ways, maybe as a community, as a church, you might provide for groups that are struggling. One that is a big one in London is displaced people in hotels. It's a massive issue in London uh, where people, maybe refugees or asylum seekers, find themselves in local hotels and churches have been really trying to invest and saying, how can we support them in those communities? But I want to be clear, look, having all of these kinds of ideas and strategies and even the great model in Jesus doesn't mean that everyone follows the model perfectly. I'm not saying for one minute that, that Christians always get it right. We don't. Doreen Brown arrived in the UK in 1956. She was age 16. She was part of what we call the Windrush generation. And she described recently how her mother was turned away from the steps of a church, St. Peter's Woolworth was its name, due to the plain fact of the color of her skin. And uh, the church, the, the Church of England denomination has had to apologize for the fact that some people, although there were some that found warm welcome, others in the 1950s didn't. And the Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that the followers of Jesus sometimes make mistakes. In fact, that the writer here, one of Jesus' closest friends, well, He's been traveling around for a while telling people about Jesus. But I wonder if you noticed in verse 34 exactly how he puts it. In verse 34, Peter begins to speak and he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Notice that. He, he himself had actually been confused about who it was that God welcomed and he himself was on a journey of discovery. Hear this. Sometimes our historic ways of thinking, even as Christians, take time to unravel. Time to unravel. And this is where my second point comes in. We're going to go more quickly now, so uh, bear with me. But here's the second thing. God offers peace. God offers peace. In other words, he offers forgiveness for the wrong things that we've done. Verse 36 of Acts chapter 10 says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know, Christians, we believe that our rejection of other people is a symptom of our rejection of God. And sometimes, of course, that can be really hostile. We don't want to have anything to do with God. But other times, uh, many of you will know that it can be just like treating God a little bit like a landlord who we don't want to stay in touch with. 
uh, a landlord who in love has left us the keys to a glorious mansion to enjoy this whole world, but has also left his number all over the place so that we can be in touch. What do I mean by that, left his number so that we can be in touch? I mean, when we look at the beauty of this world and when we see the, uh, the clarity of his words in the scripture, they all point to him. And of course, ignoring a landlord is one thing, but ignoring our creator, oh, that's quite another. It's a problem so serious with such severe consequences that it required the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he provided proof that there was a solution to this problem of hostility with God, that forgiveness was available for the wrongs that we have done. And that's good news because it means for those times when maybe we've slipped into racial offence, when we haven't welcomed people well, when maybe we haven't called out injustice when we should have done, there is forgiveness available. And that's the reason that we've spent uh, so long in our service here, singing our hearts out and praying with passion. Why? Because the judgment that we all deserve has been replaced by joy, praise God, because Jesus forgives us. And it's not just that we're forgiven, brothers and sisters. That very forgiveness that we have in Jesus is the thing that, that helps us to make progress in racial unity because it helps us to say sorry and it gives us power to be different. Let me explain what I mean. One of the most touching things for me over the last couple of years since the death of George Floyd is seeing so many friends and colleagues come up to me, email me, ring me to say sorry. Sorry for things they might have said or done that may have even inadvertently, you know, offended me. Many of them were, were Christians. And let me be clear, even as I talk about saying sorry, having brown skin doesn't mean that uh, you stop having prejudices. <laughs> I too have had to say sorry to people who I've sometimes offended, particularly some of my Asian brothers and sisters who maybe I've overlooked when things were going on that I should have actually called out myself. But here's my point when it comes to saying sorry. When you know you have been forgiven, when you know that there is peace with God despite the fact that you've made mistakes, it's easier to admit that you've made mistakes with other people. It's easier to say sorry to them. So you see, the forgiveness that we have in Jesus actually helps us with this business of racial reconciliation because it's easier for us to say sorry to others when we know that we've been forgiven. But more than that, when we've been forgiven, when we've got this peace, there is a special power to be brought together with people who are different from you. Back in 1945, there was a, a Life magazine uh, cover. Life is a, a, a national magazine in America. And on the front of the magazine, they, 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 uh, they released their new edition with a new cover. And right at the center of this edition was a soldier and a, um, a woman embracing one another. And behind the, the soldier and the woman embracing, there were loads of uh, soldiers embracing one another. 
And behind the soldiers embracing one another, there were loads of civilians embracing one another. And if you look further enough in the distance, in this same picture, you could even see soldiers and civilians embracing one another. And to the untrained eye, as you looked at this picture, it would look like a family reunion, friends who must have known each other for years and years um, coming together. But of course, none of these people in the picture knew each other at all. The year was 1945, and you might have guessed that this was a celebration at the end of the Second World War. And what the picture showed was that good news brings people together. But in a much more deeper way, the peace that we have with God, the good news that we have with God, well, it has power to bring people together too. But it's not just a moment of kind of joy at the end of a war. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us power to change. <laughs> See, this is why God is so key for racial unity, because he gives us pardon, we're forgiven, we can say sorry, but he gives us power too. He gives us power to connect with people who are different from us, so we can model a different kind of community to the world. So look, th there are the first two things. Uh, God. Uh, shows no favoritism. The second one, God offers uh, peace. But final question, how do I actually know that any of this is real? How do I know that any of this is real? And that brings me to this third and final point, that God provides evidence. Peter, as he's giving this uh, speech to someone who's very different from him, he wants him to know that all of this is true and historical, and real, and you can bank your life on it. So verse 37 of our passage says, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. I can't make this up to you, because everyone around knows what's happened. I can't make it up. Later on in verse 39, he says, we are witnesses of everything Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Do you see, there were witnesses to this. He goes on, verse 41, he wasn't seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. In other words, he's saying, look, these things are true and reliable and trustworthy, and we saw them. And praise God, we have the privilege of having them written down for us like a photocopy now in the Bibles that you have in this church. And so I just want to say that if you're here and maybe these things are newer to you, maybe you're still looking into them, then please keep looking at what the witnesses say. Please keep looking into what the witnesses say, not just what I'm saying, what Mike's saying, the witnesses who were there and who saw Jesus and who touched him. Because the question for all of us in the end is what will we do with the evidence that God has given of himself? 
In 2010, a, a woman called Kelly Harnett was sentenced to 17 years for a crime that she didn't commit. Now look, at her trial, there was one eyewitness who was there. And uh, the defense lawyer went up to this eyewitness. She was in the dock on the stand. And uh, the defense lawyer said to this one eyewitness, look around the whole courtroom. Do you see the woman who committed the crime in this courtroom? Kelly Harnett was sitting there in the dock. The eyewitness looked around and he said, she's not here. The defense lawyer wanted to make absolutely sure. So he said again, look, do you see the person who committed the crime? Look carefully, do you see her there? Answer, no, she is not here. But the jury convicted Kelly anyway. They'd made up their minds without properly considering the evidence. And it was only last year at her retrial that she was released. They ignored the solid testimony of the eyewitnesses. And I say that because I think that sometimes we can do the same. I think we can do the same. Whether you're here as a Christian or a non-Christian, we can ignore the eyewitness evidence. If you're here and you're a Christian, then we can forget, we can forget to treat people with the respect that they deserve. We can make unfair judgments on the basis of people's appearance. We can fail to call out injustices when we see them. Let's remember the evidence. God doesn't show favoritism. Will we consider again what the eyewitnesses say to us? Or, if we're a Christian here again, when we mess up, we can allow ourselves to be really, really discouraged. We can get really down, or we can think, I'm not sure if I can do this anymore. It's just too hard. If that's you, let's remember the evidence. God offers peace and forgiveness. Let's consider again what the eyewitnesses say. And if you're not a Christian, well, we too can ignore the evidence. Remember what I said? Living in this world, is, it's like God is a landlord, but one who we cannot ignore. And the problem is that unlike Kelly Harnett, if we ignore the evidence, it's not, it's not Jesus who ends up in the dock. It's us who end up facing a guilty verdict before a holy and perfect and awesome God. Perhaps it's time for you to consider again what the witnesses say because there is an offer of peace and forgiveness and hope and joy for those who put their trust in Jesus. Look, there's so much more that I could say, uh, but uh, we're just dipping our toe in the water of a massive, massive subject. But I hope you've seen three reasons that I could have real confidence that God could build a different kind of community in Battersea, a different kind of community here in South End. Three reasons why someone like William Wilberforce labored so hard to end the slave trade. Three reasons why this church is committed to racial unity and justice. God shows no favoritism. God offers peace. And God provides evidence 
of the truth of what he says. What will you do today with the words of the witnesses? Let's bow our heads and pray. Well, our loving Heavenly Father, we've uh, considered some deep uh, truths this morning. But we thank you so much for showing us something of your wonderful character that you do not show favoritism, but you accept from every nation those who humbly come before you, knowing Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. We pray you'd help us uh, to be the kind of community that that should inspire. We thank you for the forgiveness that is on offer for those times when we've made mistakes. But we pray, Father, as the world looks on at churches like this one here, St. John's South End, that they would see a different kind of community, one marked by love and care and joy because of you, Lord Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.